I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our climate-positive future a reality. The U.S. is on track to deploy 550 gigawatts of new renewables on the grid by 2030. That's a massive amount of solar, wind, and other renewables powering our buildings, electric vehicles, appliances, and industrial processes in our increasingly electrified world. Recently, electric vehicles, or EVs, hit a massive milestone, with EVs making up 5% of all new car sales last year. And Bloomberg estimates that more than half of new car sales could be EVs by 2030. That future looks bright, but to keep the lights on and the wheels turning, the grid will have to be prepared to provide power at triple its current capacity by 2050. Fossil fuel peaker plants have been filling in the gaps left by renewables during times of peak demand. But for the country to reach net zero by 2050, we'll need more sources of firm power that don't come from coal or natural gas. And that's the problem that this month's What It Takes guest, Thomas Fulker, CEO and co-founder of Leap, which is a powerhouse ventures portfolio company, is solving. Yeah, so Leap is a solvare platform that connects distributed energy resources to energy markets. And we want to make it extremely easy to become a power plant, essentially. Become a power trader without doing all the hard work of being a power trader. So think of us like Stripe, but for the energy markets. Really a single interface that connects in our backend to all of these power markets and utilities, making it extremely easy for aggregators of batteries, electric vehicles, smart thermostats to connect to the grid and start trading. Leap has built the platform needed to turn all of our various grid-connected devices into virtual power plants that can be called upon during times of high demand. Thomas and the team at Leap are helping to prevent the use of fossil fuel power plants, many of which don't actually run on a daily basis. So, you know, on any given day, the grid still relies on a lot of fossil fuel generators, and most people don't know this, but about a third of power plants don't run daily. Maybe they, they run a couple hours a month, maybe. Those power plants, called peaker plants, are fired up when demand for power on the grid peaks, like during a heat wave when everyone turns on their air conditioner. Despite being mostly dormant, the cost of operating and maintaining these plants can add up. A 2020 report found that New York City's peaker plants cost residents more than $4.5 billion over the last decade, despite only being active four to 30 days a year. And that's exactly the, uh, the type of assets that you can replace by virtual power plants. You know, zero carbon resources like electric vehicles, solar, batteries, demand response. And, uh, and that's you know, where we come in and really make that happen for a large number of what we call aggregators. So we are behind the scenes. Um, an aggregator of other aggregators. Virtual power plants, or VPPs, aggregate the combined power of electric vehicles, rooftop solar, residential and commercial batteries, and other distributed energy resources, or DERs, and make that energy available in areas of high demand. Companies that offer and manage these DERs could sell the excess energy themselves, but would be slowed down or stopped by the complex network of utilities and markets that make up the U.S. power grid. But having to do that for every single utility, for every market, and then building the integration, interpreting the rules, uh, doing the settlement, uh, all of that is extremely complicated. So we simplified that, right? So you don't have to worry about that. You integrate with Leap's API once, and then you are good to go in any market that we are in. Leap's API makes it simple for these smart grid-connected devices to collectively act as virtual power plants, and their platform allows their customers to sell that energy to buyers. To a utility looking to buy energy, these virtual power plants look and act the same as those peaker plants, minus the emissions. We have the same requirements. Um, we have to you know, abide by the same rules. Um, so the grid operator also knows that they can rely on us when we are in the market. So for every hour in the day, we are bidding into the market uh, with our combination of you know, tens of thousands of end users, um, a whole combination of DERs that can provide flexibility to the, to the, to the grid. Leap's focus on cloud-connected and automated technologies means they can adapt to the needs of the grid by moving more or less power from DERs to meet changing demand. That kind of responsiveness makes Leap's system not only a lucrative business, but a crucial tool for building grid resilience, especially during extreme weather events. 
Back in June of 2021, LEAP was instrumental in helping alleviate the strain the California grid faced during an extreme heat wave. They dispatched energy from thousands of commercial and residential sites to meet demand. Uh, we were there really delivering, I think in the peak hours, we took about 150 megawatts off the grid. So that's a lot. I mean, if you if you look at how much, how close we were to a blackout, that is low, low 10%, I would say, just from LEAP for the whole state. So that's, that, that's really good. And it's really a testament to how effective we can actually help the grid stabilize. At its heart, LEAP is a software company. And with about half of their team made up of engineers, they're solving the challenge of grid resilience with a software-first approach. Dirty fossil fuel peaker plants are just waiting to be replaced by an intelligent network of devices that can meet our increasing electricity demand. And with customers in markets like California, New York, and Texas, they're one step closer to making these peaker plants a thing of the past. So if LEAP is successful, we can take away about a third of total carbon emitting uh, generation, uh, which obviously helps the energy transition um, to a zero carbon grid. I spoke with Thomas about leveraging software solutions to solve hard, real-world problems on the grid. We also talked about how his early roles helping build energy projects, both big and small, gave him a realistic view on what it takes to make lasting change. We started with his childhood in the Netherlands, where an unsupervised upbringing inspired him to take risks. Thomas, I want to go all the way back to the beginning of your life. You grew up in Harlem. That's the original Harlem with two A's in the Netherlands with your mom and your dad and your two younger brothers. And you spent some time there before moving closer to the German border. I know your mom was a realtor and your dad was a judge. First, what was it like having a dad who's a judge? Well, not as strict as you think it would be. Uh, no, okay. I had a very fun, <laughs> uh, uh, unsupervised childhood in the Netherlands, which is a great country to grow up as a kid. So, uh, you know, you, you get a lot of uh, a lot of freedom there. Uh, what, what definitely uh, struck me as, you know, look at my dad. He is extremely good in processing tons of information. And that's probably what you need to do as a judge because the case files and, and everything. But also... He did a lot of the family courts and seeing, you know, dead other families go through struggles and, you know, you're being happy with what you have as a wholesome family. That was uh, was definitely something I, I, I you know, got from that time. What were you like as a kid? Um, adventurous and supervised. Um, I had a lot of fun. I was a little booky, but also... Um, um, you know, love to um, uh, hang out with friends. Um, as I said, right, uh, from in the Netherlands, from age eight onwards, you're on pretty much on your own. There's, um, I remember just cycling to school like five miles the other side of the town. Um, that's that's totally normal. Um, so, you know, living in the U.S., that's sometimes a little weird for me to see how supervised kids are here. But um, yeah, no, I had a, a very fun and and, and nice childhood and. Uh, yeah, as I, I grew up in Harlem, but also moved to Arnhem, which is in the closer to Germany, and um, um, in the end went to a university in the Netherlands. So I lived in the Netherlands until I was 29. And I know you, in 2000, you went to University of Amsterdam and then graduated with a master's in economic and business in 2007, and that's because of the way they kind of structure schooling. Um, curious why economics and business, and yeah, why University of Amsterdam? Uh, the, the honest answer is because I really didn't know what to do. In the Netherlands, um, economics and business at the University of Amsterdam is is well regarded, but what is more fun is just to live in Amsterdam. So <laughs> there are many universities in the Netherlands, um, and they're all great, but um, uh, yeah, Amsterdam just has a special appeal to an 18-year-old. So um, I think I just I chose the city and then the the university. Makes sense. From what I understand, you were inspired to get into clean energy when you saw a geothermal plant during a trip to Nicaragua uh, at a volcano site with your then girlfriend, now wife. Uh, and that inspired you to start a career as an analyst with Envelop International, which was securing project finance for offshore wind in the Netherlands. Tell me about those experiences. Yeah, I went on a um, a backpacking trip for a couple of months, starting in Belize all the way down to Panama and across the whole Central America, which is an incredible experience. Uh, highly recommended to to anyone that finds the time to do that. Um, yeah, and indeed in Nicaragua, we uh, which is very volcanic, uh, we uh, went up to a hike, and I just got struck by this uh, interesting looking. Uh, pipes and wires mess that you know was on the base of the volcano and turned out to be a geothermal plant and 
it really you know clicked like how oh, how cool that you can just run i think they said 25% of the um, of the region on geothermal and makes total sense right you have a volcano just drill a hole in it and you know pump some water in and steam comes out and you have free energy turns out it's a lot more complicated than that um after i started uh digging in into geothermal with um you know all the complexities that come with it but you know the idea of why are we burning fuels while there's tons of renewable energy around? Even back in 2007, you know, it was definitely um, something that, you know, piqued my interest and uh, not knowing yet what I wanted to do. Um, that seemed to be a pretty interesting industry to be in. I started reading, um, got across this uh, this incredible book that I think really a lot of people read back in the days and still relevant. It's called um, Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air by... Um, uh, I don't know if you know Dave McKay, but um, um, it really you know, kind of is is the you know kind of the fundamental book on all right. If we want to transition to renewables, like a zero carbon world, can we do it? And you know how much energy are we using? You know how much do we need to replace? How much, you know what's our lifestyles? And there were I think he created five plans of transitioning the UK, and this was about the UK to a full zero carbon world, and um, it can be done. Um, Interesting enough, solar was a tiny uh, bit of the solution there because, you know, in every chapter it's like solar could be great, but it's extremely expensive. You know, we need $190 billion, uh, to build 48 gigawatts of solar, uh, so that's never going to happen. Guess what? The UK is getting there at a much cheaper clip, so um, uh, the book needs an update. But, it's you know, that was really um, uh, one of the things that really got me excited about you know what, there is a solution here. Um, you know, solar energy might be uh, back 2008, not economically viable, but uh, the first projects I started to work on obviously were fully subsidized, but were extremely quick to build and, um, you know, are still on. They're still producing uh, 15 years later. So it's just great to see. Mm. And then in 2011, you moved to the U.S. Um, your then-girlfriend, now-wife, got a job at eBay, which brought you to San Francisco. And I understand you got married in a helicopter in Vegas. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, <laughs> we had to get married quickly. The The, the U.S. visa system is not great, but um, uh, my wife got a visa. Um, so uh, to, to be able to join her, we had to be married. So the fastest Vegas way to get married is. is to go to Vegas. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> And the helicopter was just for fun. That was for fun. Yeah, we were looking at um, um, you know, maybe you know, getting married in a chapel. But then uh, when we did um, a couple of uh, visits, at, uh, uh, the fact that all other tourists were in those chapels too, uh, mm-hmm. maybe a little queasy. So let's do a mm-hmm. private event in our in our um, in our <laughs> helicopter. And since we didn't have any guests anyway, that was perfect. <laughs> Love it. Uh, so then in 2011, you became co-founder and CFO of Solar Carib, a company trying to expand solar energy throughout the Caribbean. Uh, you were mostly living in the U.S., but spent some time in Aruba. Uh, but then you had trouble getting equipment, specifically microinverters, and then later got a call from Enphase inviting you to join them as a business development manager, which uh, which you did. So tell me about that, both the experience in Aruba, but then also joining Enphase. Yeah, so um, I got tipped off on um, the Rubin government back in 2011. Really had a, a big vision about making the company, the, con- the country, the island, which is like 120,000 people, I believe, uh, completely renewable. And uh, one of the things they wanted to build was a large um, solar park, um, really a, a marquee project right from the uh, the airport to cover the whole uh, parking lot, largest uh, solar canopy back then in um, in the Caribbean. Being a Dutch citizen, it's easier, you know, I don't have to get a work permit to work in uh, the Dutch kingdom, which includes Aruba and Curaçao and a couple other islands. So, and, um, you know, just fresh off the boat in San Francisco, I, I, you know, I didn't know really where to start. So this seemed to be a pretty good, uh, you know, a good, uh, good venue. Um, so we took on that project. This was, by, by the way, with Dave Williams. And um, we took on that project. Uh, we won the project. In the end, we didn't build it. Uh, but it really got, um, got us going in the Caribbean um, because, you know what, what? What I originally did in Europe, building solar power plants and and wind farms, was all driven by subsidy, which it needed uh, for sure. And the Caribbean was the first market where we could build solar energy without subsidies because the price of power was so high, and the solar resource or radiation uh, in those islands is is you know is, is like Arizona. You know it, it just competes on the merits. So you know building um residential and uh small commercial solar was 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 in the money without having to uh you know go through subsidies or or other um 
um, you know, financial um, incentives. And um, so we did a, a project on a, on a local brewery and we did uh, you know, a lot of residential project. It was fun, but um, you know, those islands are small and getting you know, to size into enough um, uh, market you know, is, is tough. But one of the things that I, I definitely realized is, um, you know, if you if you think about logistics, for instance, right, we uh, standardize really quickly around this new technology, microinverters, you know, which is totally you know the standard now. But back in two thousand eleven, it was quite new, and this is one company, Enphase, that uh, uh, produced those. Uh, we did that because, you know, getting a, a string inverter to uh, an island takes you four weeks. So if you have a system that needs to be up and running. And you don't want to have too many spares uh, on hand. Diversifying to microinverters makes total sense, right? You can lose one panel, two panels, maybe and you still have the system operating. Turned out getting Enphase delivered to Aruba was also complicated. So uh, we became our own distributor. And that's how we got in touch with Enphase. And uh, in the end, um, you know, the commute from San Francisco to Aruba is not very <laughs> sustainable. Uh, I lived there for a couple of months. I also, you know, miss my wife and, you know, living on islands, it gets, you know, you, you get island fever because the, the, the term, you know, it gets, it's pretty small. But um, I, I really was impressed by how Enphase came about, a very technology-driven company, and they were close to San Francisco. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the move to Enphase was, was, uh, was really well-received, well and I had a fun time there. Mm. And then from your time at Enphase, at what point did you start thinking about Leap and where did the idea for Leap come from? Yeah, so when I started at Enphase um, or, or even when I started building um, utility scale solar, connected, connecting to the grid was not an issue at all. It wasn't even on the list of, of things that you have to worry about. You just connect to the grid and no questions asked. You know, but with the incredible amount of new renewables that come online, grid operators really can't deal with that anymore. Um, so you have to go to connection queue and you have to um, you know, go through all kinds of um, you know resource planning processes to even be able to connect. And um, the idea that um, demand side resources like solar and batteries can help alleviate some of that congestion was something that already was uh, high on the on the radar at Enphase. Enphase had uh, a lot of um, market share in Hawaii and um, had trouble selling more systems because uh, the the grid became congested, especially at the the extremities of the grid, um, you know, voltage was a little bit too wobbly, and um, um, you know, the, the the grid operator Hawaiian Electric wasn't willing to allow more solar before that got resolved. So, um, Enphase came up with some very unique and creative solutions uh, to set different voltage windows on the on the inverters to allow um, you know more variability, which is not unsafe, but it's really something you can decide on if you have. Um, um, you know, have that, have that technology, and therefore they solve the congestion issues. They actually stabilize the grid, and you know, also of course could sell more systems and inverters in the in um, in the same uh, same go. So that was a great example of how demand side resources can help you know create flexibility and reliance on a grid. And this is a small grid, of course, Hawaii. And this was in the case where one producer, one uh, hardware company, had seventy five percent of the market. So then it makes sense. But if you want to translate that to an open market like California, where no one has more than 5% market share, um, and uh, the grid operator does, doesn't think in tens of megawatts, but in gigawatts, right? you really think to have, you know, have to go to scale. So the idea that demand-side flexible resources like microinverters and batteries can provide grid services makes sense. But it, to me, it only makes sense if you can do that at, at large enough scale. That's that's how the idea of Leap came about. Let's build this infrastructure solution uh, that doesn't have um, a consumer facing end and just provides services to the larger aggregators that has all that have all those assets. Because you know, leveraging their technology makes makes our scale gigawatts uh, by default, right? If if you look at Sunrun or at um, um, you know, uh, Sonova or other um, um, uh, partners on our platform, those have tens of thousands of customers that we all want to serve. And um, um, that's that's really the idea of Leap. You, you could look at other industries where the same thing happens. Twilio does this for, you know, delivering a text message to your phone. And um, so if you order DoorDash or Uber, that's a, most likely a Twilio text message you get to your uh, phone. 
or Stripe, obviously, you know, doing financial transactions behind the scene. Um, so that's the idea of Leap. Um, it was kind of sparked by Enphase, but it only works uh, when we do this as a neutral platform for all providers. Mm. And so you met your fellow Dutch co-founder and COO Remco Venden Elzen in San Francisco after a chance encounter on the street. And at that time, he was open to a new challenge, having recently sold a startup that he had built. Um, how did you pitch him on the idea for Leap? And what was that conversation like? Yeah, it was a chance encounter. Uh, his uh, his wife Anke spotted me on the street, which um, it's hard to explain to 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 non-Dutch people, but you you can point out a Dutch person from a mile <laughs> away. You don't even have to hear them speak or um, or, or do anything else. Um, so she she spotted me in the wild and said, "Hey, that's funny. You 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 must be Dutch." And I said, "Yeah, you're right." <laughs> and then um, a couple of months later, we were looking for a shared nanny to our. Uh, uh, so we were looking for a shared nanny. It turned out that uh, you know this Dutch family that included Remco uh, was uh, was also. Looking for it, and you know, we got started talking. He was definitely on a sabbatical, and he was super interested in moving into the energy space, doing more something more meaningful, as he would say it. And um, you know, that's where the idea came from to start a business together. Uh, we also bonded specifically around the idea of blockchain, which was the idea initially of Leap to um, you know become a transactive crypt platform. We we we've left that behind quite quickly, but um, um, you know it's. Still, big believer in the technology of blockchain and how it can actually, um, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, really transform the the energy space. Uh, by the way, you know, Leap is not a blockchain company anymore. Um, but um, that was you know, our. <laughs> I like how you're emphasizing that. Yeah. <laughs> for the listeners. Uh, our mutual bonding. Yeah. Well, I, I have to say, um, uh, we we definitely did some some good investments in, in crypto before you know the whole. Uh, meltdown or even the, the the big rally. So a lot of that 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 those revenues actually went into starting Leap. So in that sense, we're still um, a bit of a crypto <laughs> company, but just funded by crypto. Um, and so then, after you made the decision to start the company with Remco, you took advantage of California's demand response auction mechanism or DRAM program in 2019 and participated in a small auction. First, can you just explain what that means, and then what was that experience like? Yeah, so the uh, the DRAM mechanism, or sorry, the, the demand response auction mechanism, um, is a uh, a way in California to get more third party demand response providers in. Uh, companies like OmConnect are are are, are um, you know big participants in that. And um, yeah, we were looking for a way to have some revenue uh, so we can turn around. Right, if you don't have the assets, right, our our business model is built around not having the assets and providing just the access. But if you don't have anything to offer, no one will, of course, come to you and and, and join your program. So, so we participated in the auction, uh, which was uh, quite a unique moment because it was the overflow auction of a budget that wasn't allocated. So I don't think there were that many bidders, um, and we just got lucky, right? This is one of those uh, great examples of you know being in the right place at the right time, and uh, we got a pretty significant award. Um, and this is beginning of 2018, so we had about nine months to get to uh, the capacity on our platform. and But now, you know, this is the, you know, the, the, the famous chicken and egg. We actually had revenue to offer. So companies like Calcom and Tesla and, and uh, a whole bunch of others, you know, were open to our, our proposal because we could, you know, offer them a revenue um, that makes things work a lot easier. Got it. And can you explain how that works? So you're able to offer them revenue because you're saying we can aggregate your distribute energy resources, be it EV batteries or Nest thermostats, um, and enable them to access a new source of revenue that they otherwise didn't have access to. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So um, take batteries, for instance, right? Batteries have typically two revenue streams, backup power, and if you're a commercial uh, player, demand charge management. So you want to reduce your total peak demand on any given day. So, you know, 50% of your bill as a commercial um, operate like say a Home Depot, for instance, is the fact how much peak demand you use. So that battery is there. You know, companies like STEM, that's their whole uh, business to make sure that you know, they reduce the, the peak demand, and that's called demand charge management. Then there's a third revenue stream available to that battery, and that is selling into the grid. Right? If you have excess power um, or you know uh, ancillary services, even like um, you know frequency regulation or operating reserves. Very technical stuff, but um, you know, batteries can do pretty much everything, right? I, um, I think it was Catherine, ha- Catherine Hamilton that said, you know, the the bacon of the grid or the Swiss Army knife of the grid, and uh, I think that's a great um, uh, analogy. 
But getting to the, those revenues, you know, as I explained before, you have to either enroll into a utility program or participate in the grid. And that's for every utility and every grid and every grid operator that's different, different technologies, different metering verification, different um, uh, you know, integrations. So that doesn't scale really well. And that's really what we're, ser- we're solving. Yeah, so, so through Leap, you have access to revenues that are typically only available to power plants. And they're significant. Uh, you know, if you look at the... The typical solar storage customer, the the value of that battery increases about twenty five percent just by um, joining, you know, the virtual power plant and and having um, you know Sunrun, for instance, have access to your battery and tap in a little of that charge and sell it to the grid. You won't even notice it, but it's a it's a sizable benefit to the grid because they really need it in times of uh, stress. Mm. And so your partners and the devices you're aggregating are the Teslas and Sunruns and Nests of the world. Uh, but the entities that pay you are the utilities, the munis, the community choice aggregators. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So we are, you know, uh, connected to the to the wholesale grid, and um, uh, it, it, it differs per market. In California, we have a direct uh, takeoff agreement with, um, you know, uh, PG&E and SCE and um, a various number of uh, community choice aggregators in. The East Coast, um, that's typically sold through the wholesale market. Um, so the design is a little bit different, but you know the, the, the effect is, yes, long-term off-take contracts um, for our capacity. And then um, we also, of course, uh, make money in selling the energy uh, into the grid. Because with capacity, uh, which means you are available to the market, also comes the requirement to actually sell that energy when it's needed. Right? The, the grid really needs to know that you are available um, it's a it's a bit of a trust market, uh, trust but verify, I would say, because we do test all our resources, right? All of our uh, customers that uh, onboard, uh, we have the historic uh, meter data for every single insight. We know how the assets perform under different weather patterns. Um, you know, after four years in the market, we now have a really good grasp of you know how certain portfolios operate. We have a, an AI model that detects how certain assets have responded and if they might not be, you know, if they re- return our dispatch signals and if they, um, you know, deliver as we uh, we instruct them to deliver. So, you know, and now with 70,000 end users, um, you know, you get to a certain, to a very sizable asset that is reliable and, um, and can scale right quickly. That's, that's the cool thing. Hmm. And that's 70,000 devices that you all are connected to that can you aggregate and can bid into demand response markets. Yeah, well, 70,000 meters or sites, um, and there can be multiple devices behind those meters. So uh, it's at least 70,000. And then the controls uh, are done by our partners, right? So if, um, you know, Nest or um, Residio, uh, we just did a big announcement with them, um, they control the assets, right? So they they have the full control over the, uh, over the, over the, how how those assets operate and and respond. but their platform is integrated with our software. So um, we communicate and we keep everyone honest uh, by setting prices. So, you know, if if um, if, uh, if one of our partners tells me I'm going to sell you 10 megawatt hours for $200 a megawatt hour, and um, uh, we, we detected that asset hasn't responded, then the penalty that we get assessed by the market guest goes to our partner, right? So there is no direct integration uh, besides just a Sunrun or a Lunar have integrated with our API, but um, the, the 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 financial incentives make makes that everyone works really well together. So in 2018, you raised a 300,000 angel round, and then later that year in November, you raised a 2.4 million seed round. Who was part of the angel round, and then who joined as part of the seed round? Yeah, and, and in 2018, um, at the angel round, we were still a blockchain platform for energy transactions. So a lot can change within five months, I would say. But um, <laughs> um, our angel investors were, um, uh, yeah, well-known uh, people from the, I would say, the original clean tech wave. Um, uh, Tom Dinwoody, for instance, from Powerlight, which later became Sunlight uh, Power Systems, I believe, and then Howard Wenger, um, um, who is, I think, also an LP in. 
powerhouse. So um, yeah, incredible um, uh, angel investors, but also just a support from from those uh, two people specifically. And then the third was uh, Abel Hesse. I shouldn't, definitely shouldn't forget him. He was uh, one of the co-founders also of Energy Web Foundation, which is this uh, uh, blockchain for energy um, utilities, um, which is uh, is is, is um, uh, doing a, a lot of cool projects uh, around the world. Uh, very close to the Ethereum founders, and and that's also how I got to know them because I tried to get them into Enphase. This is before we, uh, this is like a year before uh, we started raising, obviously. But um, and that's that's the connection, and uh, yeah, I've been very lucky to have those um, uh, people support us when we still hadn't had a real business plan, and then you know uh, five months later when we participated in this Dram auction, one of the things that we needed to figure out is that if we would take that award, it does come with a responsibility to put down what's called collateral. You have to uh, put down a sizable letter of credit or cash. It's not that Leap had so much you know, credit with the bank. Um, so in our case, it was cash, and that was more than a million dollars, and we had to come up with that within two weeks. So that was one of the things you know, uh, where it was either make or break, and um, I was lucky to uh, have had an intro from our uh, our counsel, Bob O'Connor at Wilson Cini, to Abe Yokel, who just started uh, Congruent Ventures. And we got talking. Um, and you know, to Abe's credit, they were able to see the vision and um, help us get to that $1 million, um, seed investment, uh, which went straight to uh, to a bank account at, uh, at PG&E to backstop you know, that uh, capacity award. But that's really where, where, you, where, again, right, network and connections and you know, fortuity really helped make the business because I don't think we would have survived uh, without that. And then uh, congruence participation, that's part of what gave us the confidence at Powerhouse Ventures to join as part of the seed round and then National Grid Partners joined as well, also as part of the seed round. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're all been great investors. Um, so yeah, we, um, we, we used about 50% of our seed round just to, um, you know, backstop our, our performance. So we, with the rest that we had left, um, you know, we could start building our team. And uh, you know, our first hires were uh, previous employees from Remco's previous business in the Netherlands, um, uh, because we really had um, a need for engineers that started building our platform. And then it's really nice to have that network because building the same quality of engineers in the Bay Area is just, you know, to be honest, it's, it's, it's just a lot more expensive. And we just celebrated the fifth year anniversary of our first two hires, uh, Kuhn and Paul, who joined uh, Leap as the, the the lead engineers, and some of their code is still live even. So that's um, you know, tell, tells you how how well they um, you know picked up a completely new industry and started building from scratch. And um, uh, I'm just really really humbled that they're still with us and and playing such an important role within the company. Well said. So Thomas, you mentioned some of your first customers were P- PG&E and SCE, uh, but they weren't necessarily your customers by choice. Uh, this was something that was mandated by the CPUC. Tell me about the role that, the, in the case of California, the CPUC plays in your business. Yeah, I think it's really important, right? In the, in the energy space, it, it, it's a heavily regulated sector uh, because the off-takers are monopolies. So we we have a really good relationship with PG&E and SE. Don't get me wrong, uh, but yeah, it's not by their own design and choice that they went out to you know contract with Leap. It's because there's an existing program like DRAM or something else that the regulator comes up with to you know, create more uh, open space and more uh, opportunity for third party uh, innovators to come up with something new like VPPs um, that then scale. So CPUC um, has been very forward thinking about creating um, new space for third-party demand response providers or working with the grid operator to integrate that into the wholesale market, right? Um, if you look at the FERC orders, you know, 745-2222, that allow for that regulation, the, the grid operator has to implement it. But there needs to be a framework for, for companies like ours to actually work within that, um, that opportunity. So the regulator is really important there. Um, so, you know, a couple of years later, we are... Happy uh, customers of PG&E and SER. I think I think happy customers ours of ours. We have a great relationship, but yeah, that that doesn't come naturally from monopoly just to go out and you know contract with providers that are not necessarily providing directly to them. Yeah, and especially contracting with a tiny startup like Leap. Like you said, you got lucky and the timing worked. But um, like you said, you know, a massive monopoly might not engage with 
a tiny startup <laughs> on their own. No, no, I have immense respect for for startups that, that sell solely and uniquely to utilities because it's a brutal cycle to go through. I mean, if you're in, you're in, and it's really good, but it can take years. Um, you know, the way that we went, um, going essentially, you know, bypass the utility, going to the wholesale market, um, you know, it wouldn't exist without the regulator. Coming up, Leap leverages those large customers and begins raising their Series A. But first, What It Takes is brought to you by Shell Ventures. Are you ready to accelerate the energy transition? With a dedicated $1.4 billion climate tech fund, Shell Ventures is partnering with innovative companies to build a low-carbon energy future. From renewable energy solutions to next-gen mobility and carbon abatement and removal, their portfolio of investments includes some of the most promising companies at the forefront of the energy transition. Portfolio companies like Flare, who are reducing homeowners' heating and cooling expenses and emissions, like Ample, who are solving how fleets get electricity in cities, and like Palmetto, who have built a clean energy marketplace. Shell Ventures is more than capital. They specialize in unlocking deployment opportunities both inside and outside of Shell to help their portfolio companies scale, access customers, and commercialize their solutions. Visit shell.com forward slash ventures to learn more about how they can help your company reach the next level of growth. In November of 2020, Leap raised an 8.2 million Series A led by Union Square Ventures, uh, and that included 3 million in debt. Uh, who were the backers of that Series A, and what was it like raising the A? Especially, how did it compare to raising the seed round? Yeah, we uh, we we had a pretty you know large process. I think we talked to 50 investors, got a lot of no's, like every startup I think gets. Um, but in the end, Union Square Ventures, which is not uh, you know, back then at least, not a, a climate uh, uh, tech fund. Uh, we were their first investment, and we were not from their new climate fund, but from the main fund because uh, there wasn't a climate tech fund yet. Obviously, that has progressed significantly, and other investors have come into the climate tech space. So I'm, I'm, I'm really, really uh, uh, glad that that's happening. Yeah, there was a, a round led by Unisquare Ventures um, with a debt. Uh, proportion from Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, you know, other investors were Congruent Ventures, National Grid Partners, Powerhouse, uh, Elemental Accelerator, FJ Labs. Um, so, yeah, a very good group of investors um, uh, from many angles, not necessarily from the energy space, not necessarily only strategic. And um, I think that was really uh, good to kind of go to the kind of the broader audience, like okay, Union Square Ventures, which you know invests in Twitter and Coinbase and. Uh, uh, Cloudflare uh, is now moving into the climate tech space, so that's a that's been a real big support for us. Um, also, just tapping into the the um, the ecosystem of other startups that are not necessarily within your industry, but are also network businesses or infrastructure businesses in the software space. It's been extremely eye opening to me, and um, that's that's just been uh, been uh, been super helpful. Yeah, and that raising that uh, round in 2020, you know, a Series A, I think, is always Probably the hardest because we raised our Series B in in 2021. Um, I have to say that you know, in hindsight, that was definitely the top of the market. And um, you know, right now, the uh, conditions have just extremely deteriorated. I'm not saying that it's impossible to raise, but it's it's a lot harder. Yeah, agreed. And so you mentioned the Series B in June of 2021, about 33 and a half billion. Uh, led by Park West Asset Management, about twenty-five million of that was equity, and so total capital raised forty-four million. Um, yeah, how did the B compare to the A? And then, when you reflect on fundraising, what advice would you give, especially now given the market conditions? Yeah, so so we raised um, twenty-five million in equity, and 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 then complement that with debt. And uh, Silicon Valley Bank um, has been instrumental in providing the debt, and obviously we're now in a post-Silicon Valley Bank period, um, or we sit where we're we're now contract with the Silicon Valley Bridge Bank. Yeah, I mean the, the market has just completely changed. So what, what I would advise uh, founders is really to, you know, the, the advice is always okay, bridge your next you know two years with a little buffer. I think we 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 went okay, but we we definitely hired a little bit in front of the market, and um, I would have not hired as fast, for instance. Um, really, 
um, look at the unit economics because back in 21, no one was asking about, um, you know, what's your pathway to break even? That is probably the first question I get right now from investors. We have a good pathway to break even. So that's, I'm happy about that. But it's, you know, it, it, it's much more critical to have the fundamentals of your business right, right? Product market fit, showing that you can find efficiencies in what you've been building so that you're bottoming out your burn and, and really show a pathway to growth. Uh, because otherwise, it's just really hard to to you know get around done right now, uh, on terms that uh, you know you as a founder find uh, find interesting. In terms of what has gotten you this far in the last six years since you've built Leap, you formed dozens of partnerships with companies like Sonova, Sunrun, Amazon, Google Nest, Honeywell, uh, and many others in the EV and battery and smart appliances space. What have you learned about building those partnerships that might be applicable to other founders? Yeah, so it's really building out to trust. So we have an incredible partner success team, as 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 it's called, uh, right? Again, we're not we're not going out to individual consumers, so we really have to trust our partners to to, to sell our product. We're, we're a channel business, um, so for us, it's really about the partnerships, really knowing the company that we uh, we we serve, know what their roadmap looks like, how we can facilitate, you know, what are the pain points and the friction points, and really focus on those items to to resolve so you know we built a fully white labeled um software that can integrate uh at the point of sale of a battery aggregator for instance or a solar and storage um uh, uh developer um that takes away all of the friction of authorizing a customer right if you're either in pg e territory or you're on con edison territory the ex- the experience is ex- totally the same and um and that's you know really helping us Taking away friction. It's also, um, you know, structuring contracts in a way that um, risk is correctly allocated, right? If if we pass through any potential risk from a power market, um, you know, you essentially a- ask your partners to become power traders themselves. So appropriately, you know, you know, delegating risks where we are responsible, right? Our software needs to work. We have to maintain uptime. We are responsible of making sure that. Um, you know, we we fulfill our capacity requirements, and then um, you know, taking that off the table of you know one of our partners makes that um, a decision to join our platform is a lot easier for an executive team, for instance, right? They don't have to understand or take care of the of the, of the risk portion. Um, obviously, um, being fully behind the scenes, right? We have we don't have a, a brand presence within the home or within the business, and that's really important because. We want to serve everyone in this space, right? We we serve competitors. Um, we don't uh, prefer one over the other. Um, we we really early on in the in the design of our business model and our platform said, okay, we don't integrate down to the hardware. We do the other way around, so we don't create any possibility of us controlling or you know setting st- setting certain settings on on assets. It's really um, making sure that we are just the the interface and that. You know, partners can trust us on that specific aspect, but nothing more. And um, and we partner uh, with Derms providers like Energy Hub um, uh, that have been great partners for us to do that. Um, you know, that that actual integration down to the to the hardware, and um, and we just uh, do what we do best, and that's integrating with markets. Hmm. Well, I'm happy you're doing it. And when you reflect on building the company. Uh, how many people on the team today, and what have you learned about hiring since you started building the team? Yeah, so we're about seventy-five right now, about fifty-fifty between Europe and, and the U.S. Um, across seven time zones. So um, uh, that's really fun. Uh, a whole different, you know, cultures and backgrounds, and um, that's that's been really the fun part of building the company. Um, and, um, you know, obviously we, we try to get together, uh, once in a while, our teams are having offsites. I think that's really important if you are a remote team to get that cohesion. Um, so I'm really looking forward to our June offsite, um, uh, where, um, we will have the, the company together again. Um, so that's going to be fun, but yeah, you know, about hiring, for instance, um, if, if you're remote, you really should tap into the, the awesome quality of the, the global hiring pool, right? Don't. Don't get stuck into a hiring network that's you know built on either your your your, uh, your university network or something else. Some of the the most high quality team members, um, you know, we got through referrals, but also just 
um, trying to um, be visible in in places that we you know typically don't have a have a have a face. So um, um, women's networks, um, 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 uh, the, the the hiring network in Europe, for instance. So um, I think that's been 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 eye opening to me to see how much quality people are looking to get into the climate tech space. Um, and, um, you know, just be very visible there and also, um, uh, be, be open-minded for, you know, if you, if you look for a certain profile, don't have a preconceived notice of who that person should be and just be completely open-minded. We have a pretty, um, strict approach to interviewing. Uh, it's all structured interviews, for instance. So everyone gets the same questions that really helps, you know, being able to compare apples to apples in the hiring process. And that's been super helpful so far to get high quality team members in that uh, not always, you know, you know, fit the, the typical description of a, a utility executive or, uh, uh, you know, someone that's, uh, you know, all up, all in about energy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well said. If you could go back in time six years ago to when you were starting Leap, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, you know, pace yourself. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's easier said than done. Um, I don't do 100-hour weeks uh, anymore, but, you know, sometimes, like this weekend with Silicon Valley Bank, for instance, that was definitely a 100-hour week. But, yeah, pace yourself. Um, Also focus on on your family and uh, make sure that you you have a life besides being just a founder. I've seen, and I've seen it with myself, too, right? It's easy just to just focus on, on your startup, and not focus on uh, on the people that matter to you. So I, I I would highly recommend that every founder just be aware of that. It's a it's a pitfall. How has your leadership style changed since you started at Leap? If it has, yeah, definitely it has. Um, and you know I'm still learning. Uh, we're all about open critical feedback, and you know I I I receive it as much as as anyone else, and uh, and and that's you know, a way to grow. So uh, having a completely transparent, open communication style, I think is extremely important never take anything in you know as an offense or something uh, i think you know uh, everyone wants to work uh, and uh, on some on to grow and i always assume positive intent obviously when the company went remote um you know i don't have a uh, an inc- incredible documentation style right my note taking is terrible if you look at my uh, uh, my collection of notes it's all in different places i really have to force myself um to be extremely uh, diligent about that, because in a in a remote environment, every communication is is written. You have to document it. Has to be clear who takes decisions. A leadership style where you're much more clear about delegating and making sure that it's clear who takes ownership of what and what's what is expected of you, and not try to do things yourself too much um, is something I'm trying to work on, uh, and um, um, and that's something that really changed from the beginning, obviously where. Um, all the way down to, you know, the supply plans into the the, the market were, were my responsibility. And I'm not saying that was a great job that I was doing, but it, it was it was fun, though, um, you know, doing a lot of the work myself. Um, uh, but, yeah, um, if you you know, if your team grows, you have to also take a step away there and uh, you know, trust that your team can do it. And um, that's that's definitely something uh, that we work on within the, within the company. Yeah. What has been the single worst day at Leap, and what has been the single best day? Ooh, um, I mean, many worst days. Very recently with the Silicon Valley <laughs> Bank, uh, but um, yeah. I think a lot of startups have um, have had that. But uh, you know, m- more specific to Leap, maybe uh, the first month we were in the market was in February 2018, and this is when we still had the, you know, the 300,000 angel round um, that was um, backstopping our. Our bank, because uh, as you remember, the million that we got from Congruent was in a, in account backstopping our uh, our um, our security bonds, and um, uh, we got a call. Was it February twenty eighth, twenty nineteen? Sorry, I, I I still remember this vividly. We got a call from the grid operator Kaizo, and they congratulated us on our first month in the market. But they also said that we got slapped with a hundred thousand dollar penalty because we. Forgot to bid in in certain hours, and uh, we didn't really fully comprehend the uh, the 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 grid operator's rules. Uh, so, if you could please wire the hundred thousand dollars uh, in two oh business gosh. days, and this you know this was literally fifty percent of the budget we had in our account. So, that was definitely you know my worst day and uh, the beginning of the company. Yeah, and what about the single best day? 
Yeah, I, I would say many. Um, it's always easy to dwell on, on like on the, the dramas, but um, you know, a, be, a really good day is when things go really smoothly and people have fun. So I'm, I'm just going back to our, um, you know, our, our last company offsite in uh, in New Orleans um, when we had the whole team together and you know people that haven't hadn't met each other yet only online. We just came out of pandemic. Um, you know, we're just um, you know high fiving and having a lot of fun, and it was just you know. Looking at that, seeing that from from afar, and uh, I was I was pretty proud of what we accomplished. Hmm, I love that, uh, Thomas. Can you speak to your experience as a white man leading a climate tech company in an industry that is majority white and male? How do you think about that? Yeah, no, I, I, th- I think it's something that um, you know should be discussed. And um, energy uh, is a industry that touches everyone, so it shouldn't be just uh, white guys in um, in slacks, right? Um, but what I would say is, though, that um, I think you should always be aware of what type of privilege you might have, right? Um, you know, for instance, being an immigrant, I, I, I know that going through the immigration process, not being, you know, secure about your visa status, for instance, is um, is something that a lot of people have to deal with. And it's a, it's, it's, it's a bit of a privilege to have that secure status. And so one of the reasons, for instance, that we don't dis- discriminate or distinguish between applicants for, for roles based on what your immigration status is, as going as so far as fully sponsoring green card processes or, um, you know, seconding someone in our Dutch subsidiary to make sure that, you know, they can stay within the team. Also, you know, looking at how can we appeal to more uh, women, uh, more people of color. Um, we've worked really closely with Elemental, for instance, in, in making sure that our job postings are, uh, are not off-putting to anyone. I, I wasn't even fully aware of that, but, you know, terms like, we are looking for a rock star are, are, are actually not that conducive of you know, appealing to a, a wider uh, group of talent uh, because it can be off-putting and, and really focusing on um, making the funnel as wide as possible. You know, we don't have a, um, you know, we don't have the rule that we want to end up with, you know, exactly a woman in that position or, you know, um, a person of color or, or anything, but making sure that the funnel is wide enough to actually do the effort to talk to as many diverse candidates as possible um, really, you know, taught me that there's so much talent everywhere. Um, climate tech and energy is predominantly, um, you know, male dominated, white male dominated, and uh, we're just missing out on a lot of uh, good concept and, and diversity of thought that that really can move this industry further. So, um, yeah, that's 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 been really on my mind um, in the couple last couple of years for sure. Hmm. You touched on this earlier, but you are a partner to your wife and a parent to your two kids. What has it been like being partner, parent, and CEO all at the same time? Fun, um, but uh, also really intense. Yeah, my kids are seven and five now. Um, so as you, you, if you do the math, right, my, I was signing the, the deals for, uh, for this first capacity auction while in the hospital uh, when my son was born. And I really didn't enjoy any any um parental leave or anything that was just not on the in the cards and, and you know not complaining about that but you know that that is the the downside of of doing all of it together but it's also an intense experience that i look back on fondly i have a great relationship with my kids uh working from home nowadays uh, really uh increases the amount of time i spent with them you know uh, looking back at my own parents they you know just had just office jobs and uh, you know wouldn't see them until you know, after dinner, uh, sometimes. Um, so, um, you know, that's, I'm trying to, you know, make sure that, uh, that, that I do spend time with family as much as possible, uh, where possible. Um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty intense. Uh, but you got to like it and you got a little bit, you got to be sometimes a little masochistic, I think, uh, to, to enjoy <laughs> both of those roles. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, looking ahead, what will the future of virtual power plant services and demand response look like in a decade? Yeah, I would say any any flexible resource. So your electric vehicle to your solar to large batteries to any device will be automatically um, participating in, in a virtual power plants. Just like solar inverters uh, nowadays are by design what's called grid responsive. You know, they're not operating in a vacuum. They're lis- they're listening to the grid and they're changing their behavior based on how the grid operates. The same would be the case for uh, smart thermostats, electric vehicles. You know, V2G uh, in ten years from now will definitely be uh, you know vehicle to grid uh, will definitely be base you know table stakes. Um, 
and then we will be able to really replace, um, you know, in California, about 10 gigawatts of peaking capacity of, you know, aging fossil fuel infrastructure that can be replaced by um, clean VPPs. And we can soak up all of that solar energy during the day uh, that goes to ground right now because, you know, there's no off takers and really help, um, you know, move that into the afternoon and, and evening and, and, and run a grid on 24-7 on, on renewables. If you look at California, you know, we had days where the grid, you know, for, for some hours at least, uh, ran on renewables. That's a great headline, but it's not, you know, showing you that, you know, 99.9% of the time we still rely on fossil fuel generation um, to back up that grid. Um, and, you know, 10 years from now, we should be able to do that just on the basis of, of demand response, batteries, and, uh, and load control. And if LEAP succeeds, what will the company look like in a decade? Yeah, we're looking to do gigawatt scale, you know, impact. So that's, that's really how we designed the business and how we started, um, you know, our, our platform. So, you know, if we don't do at least five gigawatts in in a decade from now, I don't consider that necessarily a success. Famous last words, you know, if I <laughs> we'll, listen we'll, back. Yeah, exactly. We'll do we'll do a show again in five years. Yeah. <laughs> Great. We're going to close with our high voltage round. These are quick questions, quick answers, quick meaning like a couple words. Starting with, Thomas, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? Oh, um, I'm thinking about um, a, a tardigrade. You know, a tardigrade. I do not. Micro animals that can they can survive in in space vacuum <laughs> and in their you know six times the the water pressure uh, of the you know the deepest ocean uh, or you know they can they can even survive I think by you know zero zero Kelvin. Wow. And, and these are complex animals. I mean, you know, not massive ones, but you know really resilient. And um, yeah, I think uh, that might uh, define uh, how I'd like to be at least. <laughs> uh, you are definitely, that. that is a first on what it takes. Most people say dog or <laughs> something like that. <laughs> a tardigrade, yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's uh, the favorite uh, animal of uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Nice, so that's, nice. I'm not claiming uh, any uh, authorship. <laughs> Originality. Uh, other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Uh, I would say my wife. Um, for sure, it's it you know it, that's really a, a partnership, right? Uh, starting a startup, um, I mean, we we didn't have a salary for two years. Uh, I in some cases just you know funded the company from my savings account, right? Um, that requires a partner that stands behind you and just um, signs off on that. And you know that's that's really a, a partnership. And um, and uh, you know she's now uh, doing a startup, um, and um, and that's working out really well. So yeah, I would say that. Uh, my wife. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? Ooh, um, does it have to be uh, in energy or? Uh, Let's say it can't be in energy. Okay, um, something I really enjoy. Um, I, I yeah, maybe become a, an ocean sailor. Mm. Um, I really like sailing, um, and um, you know that 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 looks that looks really cool. Mm. Tell me about a specific time that you failed. Yeah, I mean. Uh, it, and during during last summer, for instance, uh, we had to let go of of, uh, of some people, uh, really because the um, we were hired in front of the market and um, yeah had to had to right size the company. That was um, you know a personal uh, failure, and it was extremely painful. Um, but you know also a good lesson. I'm really glad that everyone landed you know on their feet. And uh, but I would say that would definitely be a failure. What lesson has taken the longest to learn? Um, to pace yourself and to be ruthless in not trying to do everything. Um, so my product team will, will probably tell you that um, you know focus, focus uh, is something we 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 all need to do, um, and that's a hard lesson to learn even even after five years. <laughs> What's the best investment you've ever made? Um, ironically, probably Bitcoin uh, because that was super early on. Um, but that also, and, you know, looking back at it and now looking at the energy intensity of uh, that, I'm, I'm not sure if that, you know, it's also morally my best investment, but, um, I'm glad I could turn that, um, into the seed, you know, kind of a pre pre seed round of, of, of leap. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, it turned out for the best. Mm-hmm. What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? That we can't solve the climate change crisis that we're in. Right. Um, as a you know, starting uh, my career with that book of uh, Dave McKay, it, you know, it, it can be pretty demotivating to look at the actual numbers and like, how are we ever going to do this? And how you know, deploy enough capacity and enough assets 
uh, to get us out of this mess. And you know, if, you know, if we would have started ten years ago uh, with the amount that we did, it would have been so much easier. And it's sometimes deflating to think about that, and especially, you know, you know, numbers like uh, we have only twelve years to fix it. You know, what I don't believe is that you know, we don't have twelve years to fix it. We everything we do right now has an effect on how the the outcome of where we're going to be. And we should do everything we can to, you know, reduce emissions and 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 throw all the the opportunities at it. But um, yeah, there, there's this trend of we're too late. I don't believe in that. No, we're never too late. We can solve a lot of the stuff that we messed up with technology. When are you your best self? Uh, when am I my best self? Really early in the morning before everyone uh, starts. Obviously, with with our time zone differences, you know, I can start at five in the morning or six in the morning and. You know, we still have a lot of people uh, online, but uh, you know those early early, hour, early hours where um, uh, you don't have to worry about kids or anything, and just um, you know start with a coffee and and um, and, um, and have some clarity of, of mind. That's one probably my best. Hmm. What is your worst trait? Uh, I would say being impatient, impatient, and uh, not clear enough in um, what I you know want. And become impatient if people don't understand what I what I want. So, um, you know, it's definitely um, um, a trade I, I need to improve on. Mm. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Maybe something very fundamental, like um, the um, the stability of, of of CO2 in the atmosphere. Let's let's change that from a thousand years to ten years, right? And then uh, we can all go back to. Uh, Doing fun stuff around generative AI and um, <laughs> um, you know unlimited uh, travel or whatever, um, and then uh, so it's wishful thinking, obviously. And uh, but uh, you know that's probably the question. Yeah. If there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? Uh, let's say my mom. Oh. She uh, yeah she follows me and she she uh, she sends me. Uh, uh, articles uh, every day, and she's she's really uh, uh, into the uh, you know, what we're building. Uh, so, I got a, a very supportive uh, text message um, uh, when Silicon Valley Bank uh, news also uh, uh, became global news. Uh, so, yeah, I, w- I would say uh, that's probably her. And if she was standing in front of you right now, what would you say? Um, everything's going to be all right. It's <laughs> good. Um, finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because they don't focus. If you really knew me, you would know. That I know all kinds of weird trivia. <laughs> I will bring you to my next trivia party. Good to know. Success is? We're, we're measuring how, how people you know, feel and, and, and value uh, working at Leap. So would you recommend Leap to your friends as an employer? And I think only when you score a 9 uh, or a 10 on a scale from room to 10, that's considered a promoter. So you know, what success looked like? To have everyone that in that bucket, that they would recommend Leap as their uh, next employer. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have. I would have started Leap earlier, maybe even while the market wasn't ready for it. What we've, you know, spent so much time on right now is really perfecting the platform, and um, you know, we would have been able to grow quicker in in 2019, 2020. Um, and um, maybe prepared better for the for the pandemic. All the the, the third party, sorry, the, the second order effects there, which is really hard to prepare for, like supply chain issues and and just a complete meltdown of uh, uh, and and the topsy turviness of of financing and, and inflation really impacted our business. So be better prepared for these economic shocks that um, you know are hard to prepare for. If the world knew me for one thing, it would be maybe as someone that um, really wants to be a bridge between the climate tech space and the wider tech space. And you know, if anyone listens to this podcast, I'm really happy and willing to connect everyone to anyone. Um, so maybe as a as a networker or as a connector. Obviously, Leap can't hire everyone, but I I I really want as many talent and as many talented individuals to go into this sector. It's a great sector. It's a guaranteed job sector. Um, so you know, especially during these economic downturns, you should consider a, a you know a career change if you're not already in this space. And I'm happy to be, you know, a guide or um, you know a sounding board uh, to um, talk to individuals that um, uh, you know want to consider a career change into climate tech. 
I'm most proud of? My family. Hmm. And last question, to build a successful startup, what it takes is? You have to have a high pain tolerance. I would tell you that. (laughs) And you you have to have, um, jokingly maybe, but um, yeah, a a high pain tolerance and a very... Uh, low requirement for your sleep resting hours. Um, that might be um, a good recipe for the first couple of years. It's not sustainable, but you probably need that. Excellent. Thomas, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. And I'm so grateful that we got to meet you really early in Powerhouse Ventures so that we had the opportunity to back you. And um, I'm really excited to share your story with with our industry. Great. And thanks for all the support during all those years. The the, the ups and downs and, um, you know, if anyone's listening, um, Powerhouse and the Venture Fund, uh, I, I would recommend getting them on your cap table, <laughs> even if it's for a small amount. Thank you so much, Thomas. So appreciate it. And I'll see you soon. Thomas Folker is the CEO and co-founder of Leap. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building our climate-positive future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. I'd also like to thank What It Takes listener Sue Carrant, who said, What It Takes interviews cover the inspiring stories of our climate tech heroes. But what's most compelling is how the show draws out the vulnerability and authenticity that allows us to relate to and see ourselves in them. Thank you. And let's go, everyone. We can do this. I agree with Sue Carrant. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse and Powerhouse Ventures with support from PostScript Media. Powerhouse is an innovation firm that works with leading corporations and investors to help them find, partner with, invest in, and even acquire the most innovative startups in clean energy, mobility, and climate. Powerhouse Ventures backs entrepreneurs building the digital infrastructure for rapid decarbonization. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund, that's powerhouse.fund, and follow us on Twitter at Join Powerhouse, and you can follow me at Emily Kirsch. Whether you are listening to the show for the very first time or if you're a longtime listener, you can support us by giving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We read and appreciate every one of them, and we read some of them on the show. And if you have a friend or colleague who you think might like the episode, please send them the link. Our executive editor is Stephen Lacey. Dalvin Abawaji, Ann Bailey, and Sam Wolforth helped produce this episode. Sean Marquand is our engineer. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. 